Hi everyone, welcome back to the World Triathlon Edmonton Science and Triathlon Podcast. This is a series of interviews that we're having with the speakers of our 2020 Science and Triathlon Conference that is happening online as monthly seminars in partnership with the University of Alberta. The conference is 100% free, so if you're interested in, in knowing more about it, please make sure that you give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter. We are at WTS underline Edmonton. And if you have missed any of the previous seminars, then the recordings will always be made available on our website. So check www.edmonton.triathlon.org and under the tab 2020 Science and Triathlon Conference, you can find more information about previous seminars. This is episode number four, and today we're going to be talking with Dr. Jim Dennison. Dr. Dennison is a professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport and Recreation at the University of Alberta in Canada. He's a sports sociologist and coach educator with his research examining the formation of coaches' practices through a post-structuralist lens. Dr. Dennison is the former director of the Canadian Athletics Coaching Center, a position he held from 2010 to 2014. He has written numerous book chapters and referred articles, and he has edited Coaching Knowledges, Understanding the Dynamics of Performance Sport, and co-edited Endurance Running, a Sociocultural Examination, and Moving Writing, Crafting Movement in Sports Research. He serves on the editorial board of Sports Coaching Review and was co-editor of the Rutledge Handbook of Sports Coaching. Dr. Dennison is also the author of The Greatest, the official biography of the Ethiopian running legend Haley Gibrisselassie and Benster and Beyond, The Mystique of the Four-Minute four Mile, a collection of in-depth interviews with a wide array of sub-four-minute milers. Dr. Dennison is originally from New York and he earned his PhD in kinesiology from the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana and his master's degree in educational psychology from the University of Toledo. Dr. Dennison is also a former NCAA Division I middle distance runner with a personal best of 340-350 for the 1500 meters. He was head boys cross country and track coach at Bronxville High School in New York, assistant men's cross country and track coach at the University of Toledo, and volunteer assistant men's cross country and track coach at the University of Illinois. So let's welcome Dr. Dennison to today's podcast. Dr. Dennison, welcome. Thank you so much for joining our conference this month. We're pretty excited about your presentation on October 8th. And the topic of your presentation is the politics of practice design. So I'm going to start by asking you, what do you mean with the politics of practice design? Great. Thanks, Joao. It's nice to speak to you. And I'm also looking forward to speaking to the group coming up in a, in a week or so. Track and field, uh, endurance running is my background as an athlete and a coach. So I feel like I have a strong connection to the triathlon world. I've never done a triathlon officially, but I've done quite a few unofficially because I enjoy swimming, biking, running, and I've had lots of occasions in part of leisure to kind of piece them together and make that into a workout. And I've always enjoyed watching triathlon I was at the 2012 Olympics, mainly to watch track and field, but did watch the triathlon there. And actually, before coming to Canada, I worked in New Zealand for a few years and did have some involvement with triathlon New Zealand and working with some of their athletes. So it's a great sport and congratulations on all the success you guys have had in your sport growing it, growing it over the years. 
to get to your question. I really love this title because I hope it does, which I sort of heard from your voice, Joelle, like, hey, politics of Pratt, what is that about, okay? So the reason why I, I threw that word in there is because my, my background as a scholar is in the sociocultural area. And as a sociocultural scholar of sort of sport and coaching, we're really interested in sort of the formation of knowledge and why certain knowledges have come to dominate and others are more marginal and what are the various politics behind that? Meaning, what are, the, what are the circumstances? What are the events? What are the power relations? What are the perspectives that have uh, led to certain views being considered dominant, others being considered less worthy? And as a result, what then happens in practice? Because knowledge and practice go hand in hand. And in terms of what gets done in practice is very much dictated by what's available, what's circulating, what knowledges are prevalent, what people are hearing, who has the authority to say what matters and who doesn't. For example, look at this conference. You've got a lot of experts, people who have degrees after their names and a lot of experience and have produced a certain type of result or athletes. And so that's who comes and speaks. So in some cases, ideas can be perpetuated just because we're sort of trapped in the same way of thinking. And so that's, that's political, right? Nothing is apolitical. Whenever we bring people together and share knowledge and engage in sort of relational activities, there's always some sort of jockeying for power happening, which then leads to certain perspectives coming forward with more credibility. And, and that's politics. Jim, and moving forward with, with this topic in, in politics, then could you, based on your background in, in coaching and, and everything that you have done academically and, and with the books you've published and so on, could you, could you provide us a brief overview of coaching history in terms of where we, where we were a few years ago or where we were a few decades ago in our approach to coaching and where we are now and where do you see us going in the future in, in the sport? So that's a good question. And I think I will definitely talk about that in my presentation because one of the things I'm gonna lead off with in my presentation is talking about how, what was it that influenced how we understand what being an effective coach is? And what does being an effective coach look like? And where did those ideas come from? And so if you read sport history and you read coaching history and you sort of look at connecting the dots, it's pretty apparent that much of how we practice sport today and much of how we think about effective coaching today emerged you know, in the sort of uh, early 20th century or late 19th century through a whole host of rapid changes happening across society and culture. So, one obvious one is obviously the industrial revolution and how various systems of mechanization and efficiency and control and productivity had profound effects on human performance. And that became seen as in many ways a template for developing humans in all their capacities where they're striving to reach their potential. So it was a very logical conclusion that many of the ideas of 
the way in which we organize a, an assembly line and the way in which we are expedient with space and time and you know planning and being efficient and squeezing everything possible out of uh, everything we do became a norm for you know achieving success helping people achieve their potential uh, avoiding mistakes and being consistent uh, with sort of the application of our knowledge. So we see, that's why when we, when we talk in sport, it's not an accident that coaches often use the body as machine metaphor. Mm -hmm. We hear that all the time, like in a sport like triathlon, oh, she's got a great engine, right? Or, uh, you know, we got a, this first race, you know, we're kind of just use it as a rust buster. You know, well, humans don't have rust, right? Machines have rust. So this machine metaphor has really permeated the way we think about sport and coaching. Other metaphors could have, I had a PhD student a few years ago who wrote a great, great uh, uh, PhD thesis and the title was, first part of the titles was Soldiers, Animals and Machines. You know, the formation of coaching's dominant understanding of, of production and productivity. So he was able to trace really well how that idea of seeing athletes either as soldiers, machines, or animals, you know, really was prevalent. And that's problematic because we're, we're, we're neither of those things. You know, we are, we are human beings where you have a number of complex systems within a system of complex systems. We're emotional, we're physical, we're social, uh, we're dynamic, we're open, we're complex. Coaching is relational, coaching is social, coaching is personal. So I think to answer your question, Joelle, I think that that mechanistic history of industrialization and efficiency had a lot to do with how coaching kind of and sport practice developed. But certainly that's changing in the last few decades as people are obviously more aware of the fallacy of that alignment, right? Mm -hmm. And not only the fallacy of it, but it's unintended consequences, which can be quite problematic in terms of injury, burnout, uh, or, uh, underperformance. Now, here's our challenge, of course. It has produced gold medals. It has produced world records. And so I think we're always, you know, being that kind of mechanistic, you know, kind of very you know, dehumanizing athletes and not necessarily considering all of the complexities of, of human social interaction has led to great champions coming about. But I guess we can ask a couple questions. Well, at what cost? And secondly, well, is that optimal? Is that best? And I think with my research, what I'm interested in exploring are questions of effectiveness and ethics. Uh, to me, those go hand in hand. Like, yes, there's processes and procedures we could follow that might be effective, but could we be more effective? And similarly, what about the ethics involved in some of those processes? And clearly that's changing across the world. You know, we see much more discussion, debate, and research on issues related to athlete engagement, to empowerment. We're seeing, you know, this is the other reason why I put politics in my title. Look at what's happening in sport today. You know, protests, athletes' rights. People are standing up and saying, no, you can't just tell me to shut up and play. You know, I'm a human being as well. So these factors off the court are now being seen or off the field are now being seen as much more 
relevant and significant in the development of athletes. And I think it's time that coaches really have to start paying attention to what that looks like in practice when they're in front of their team. That's, that's a fantastic take, Jim. Thank you so much. One thing that I'd like to ask you based on, based on what you said is, you know what, we, we have this, this approach to coaching that, as you said, it's, it's very likely not the most effective one, and it's possibly not ethical with, with all these scandals that we have had recently in, in coaching and, and in sports. But as you said, you know, it, it led to some gold medals. So do you think that the approach to coaching basically changes from the scenario and the context that you are, depending on who, who are the athletes that you have in your hands, saying if you're working for a larger federation or a larger corporation where you have that group of athletes who definitely want to come and join your program, then they might be, then maybe you don't have to think as much about the specific approaches to coaching or how you coach your athletes in that sense, because you know what, if you come to my program and you don't like what we're doing, it's your problem. It's your loss. We got another five or 10 athletes that are actually going to come because we have been so successful with this approach over the year. So do you, do you see this, this perception that maybe coaches approach to how they actually coach their athletes changes depending on the level that we're working with? So context is always so important in determining how coaches might coach. And uh, the example you use is, is a really scary one in some ways because it talks about, you know, you're kind of suggesting, and I don't think you're advocating this, you're just kind of suggesting that there has been an understanding of the disposable athlete mm -hmm. you know, and the sort of assembly line manufacturing of, of athletes. And if one athlete is seen to have a fault instead of trying to address that fault, the easier course of action can be just to discard that athlete and then work on the next one and hope that she doesn't have that fault. Yeah. So that, I mean, that, that's, a really, that's a really powerful ethical question, but also I, I, I don't think it's a very strategic approach to talent development and thinking about who we are as coaches. I think you could look to East Africa as a response to this kind of issue because in a sense, they do have a, uh, a high number of athletes who were willing to train hard and be successful due to the incredible you know, monetary financial opportunities that can arise from success uh, running marathons, for example, uh, in terms of providing for their families. But yet, we're recognizing now that even, you know, even in countries like Kenya and Ethiopia, where they've had these long traditions, even they're recognizing the importance of wow, we have to take care of our athletes. We have to nurture talent carefully. We have to think about what we're providing our athletes to help them adjust to their growth and development and deal with injuries and fix any problems they might have. We really can't take anybody for granted also because we don't know how talent is going to play out in the end. Um, so I would, I would like to hope that coaches would resist that idea of seeing athletes as disposable at the same time, it can, be, it can also be ethically problematic when you don't have a lot of good athletes coming through because then there becomes a feeling of possession and fear about not letting an athlete spread their wings or try things or engage in maybe something that, you know, as a coach, maybe taking a bit of a risk with an athlete, like trying a new block of training or introducing a new element to their program, but rather keeping it conservative and safe, which might also slow down the athlete's progression and development. Mm 
-hmm. So it's, it's a really difficult one, you know, to sort of get that balance right in terms of ethics, effectiveness, and to bring in a word that you're really referring to, development, you know. I think we have to think about development as never stopping. Mm -hmm. and we always, we always, as coaches, we always have a role in the development trajectory and story of our athletes. And I suppose if we're in an organization and an institution that supports those values well, then as a coach, we can feel more comfortable in not being so uh, dependent on immediate results and being judged every, every day, every minute on what your athletes are achieving. Thanks, Jim. And then this is basically... I guess you, you, you answered my, my follow-up question because where I was trying to go with that is there's always some resistance from coaches in terms of changing their approach to how they deal with their athletes and so on. And basically by, what I was, was going to go with that question is I was going to ask you if, if you think that some of, the, some of the resistance that we have within changing our coaching approaches comes from the fact that maybe these programs at higher levels are actually successful with this coaching, with these approaches that are unethical and, and, and non, non, not as effective as, as you mentioned, but then you, you basically, like I said, you, I guess you answered that when you mean, when you're talking about the East African runners and how they start seeing how these things are important as well. So I was going to ask you if, if this is sort of a trickle down effect in the sense that, you know, at the highest programs, the top level athletes in the world or organizations in the world, they don't worry as much as an athlete center approach and they do things their own way to have their own, hard leadership style and you know that is enough to lead to results and then if that would trickle down to to coaches at, at different levels of maybe getting the same the same coaching approach or the same coaching perspective without having the athletes to actually show the the results that some of those organizations would have but then Jim that I, I would like to shift the question and, and ask can I just can I just comment on that a little bit yeah, obviously. Go for it. Yeah, because really you hit the nail on the head with respect to politics because that's politics, right? In terms mm -hmm. of you use the word yourself. There's a resistance to change. Well, what is politics? Politics is about that tension between, you know, resistance to change, growth, innovation, you know, risk, uh, and leadership that can kind of uh, put in place structures and systems that support innovation and creativity and <clears throat> politics plays a part because if you're getting good results, the funding is coming, the sponsors are coming, the media is coming. So the risk to change that can have big implications on your, on your funding, on your fan base, on your sponsor base. Mm -hmm. And so all those all those players are influencing your decision-making, which is what politics is, right? Engaging in the negotiation with others as to what is the most effective and ethical way to move this forward. So the will to change an organization that's successful, but somebody thinks it could be more successful is a huge political undertaking because you have to turn a big boat around. Um, and I think you're also right that what, what's happening up top can very easily start to influence what coaches are doing trickling down because what does that top organization do? do? It starts to establish norms, roles, procedures, benchmarks, KPIs that everybody feels they have to hit 
So they start coaching towards those targets and their imagination and their opportunities to be creative and take risks become reduced because of the politics of conforming to what the dominant group is kind of arguing is the right way. Mm -hmm. So whenever we see right, correct, best being reinforced through an institution's agenda, we're in the game of politics and that can only trickle down to influence everybody who's part of that assemblage of coaches, athletes, race, organizer, race organizers, Olympic committees, whatever it might be. They all form like this assemblage together that works to sort of shape the understandings of what counts as right or correct. Mm -hmm. it's, it's fantastic that, that you mentioned that because I had a few conversations with, with some triathlon coaches and, and some of them have the perspective that, you know what, we're, we're not this specific country or we're not this specific provincial uh, organization or national organization. So we don't have the same resources that they do. Meaning that if we want to achieve success, we can't do the things, we can't do things the way that they do. We have to, we have to innovate. We have to, to think differently and, when, and we have to go to a different approach. And they, and they, and they frequently mention this difficulty that they, that they face in actually making those changes because politics, someone at a higher stake yeah. is always going to look and say like, well, yeah, we're thinking about making these changes, but then this is not what the most successful organizations are doing at the moment. Yeah. Jim, but let me shift gears a little bit and then ask you one thing. We, based on what you said, and we started playing, paying a lot more attention to the athlete and, and the process and trying to make sure that we don't, don't treat the athlete as a machine, as a soldier, as you put with that PhD thesis. And the, this term, athlete-centered coaching, gets thrown a lot. What, what do we mean by athlete-centered coaching? And is this an effective way of coaching? Well, I actually wrote a paper in 2017, uh, maybe you've seen it, I don't know, on athlete-centered coaching. And what it was, was it was a critique of athlete-centered coaching. Mm -hmm. So the critique wasn't to say that athlete-centered coaching is a bad idea. The critique was that prescriptions that are largely forwarded to promote athlete-centered coaching exist mainly in the realm of language and rhetoric. It's largely a result of, you know, research done by sports psychologists who are promoting that coaches need to tr treat their athletes better, you know, think about their personal needs, uh, engage them with, you know, questions and how they feel and how they think. And that's, that's all really, really, really good. That's, I mean, I'm, believe me, I'm 100% behind that. But what I wrote in that paper with two of my PhD students at the time was how unless the intentions of athlete-centeredness are followed through with changes to the X's and O's, the practices that coaches create for their athletes, this athlete-centered Rhetoric will just be that, rhetoric. I saw a recent uh, analysis done on uh, gymnastics coaching in Britain. And if anybody knows, gymnastics coaching in Britain is undergoing a huge problem with athlete abuse and scandals, huge. Uh, this researcher 
went to all of those gyms where all these abuses were happening and found on every blackboard and every bulletin board in those gyms, proclamations about athlete empowerment and athletes' rights and athletes are what counts and athletes, listen to your athletes. So lots of really good ideas. But the problem is, until we address the X's and O's, until we address the details of our practice designs, we might unwittingly be coaching in a way that makes it almost impossible for our athletes to become engaged, empowered, and thinking athletes, which is what athlete-centeredness is about. Mm -hmm. So in the sport of distance running, for example, we have a huge tradition of strict control of time, space, uh, repetition, sets, et cetera. And what I was trying to make clear in that article is that these details of our practice designs, they're not innocent. They do things, right? So once you start defining sets, reps, recoveries, and prescribe these things, even though you're talking a lot about athlete-centeredness, you're actually setting up an environment that is based on kind of command control and your expertise. So until we start changing the details of our practices, it's really gonna be difficult to truly create an athlete-centered environment because talk alone is, is not enough. It's kind of this walk the talk, slogan that we have. So if you really believe in athlete-centeredness, then you need to change your practices in a way that starts to facilitate that, support it, and encourage it. You can't just carry on with the same old practices that have that are largely a result of what I'm going to talk about in my presentation. This modernist legacy we have in sport of being efficient, productive, and, and controllable. Jim, I think this, this brings me memories of one of your PhD students' team's thesis, if I remember correctly, and then Alex Hutchinson wrote a really nice piece, I think, on one of the articles that came out of his thesis. So then my follow-up question to you is, how can we modify these details in, in our practice? What can we do to actually make sure that putting these things into practice and creating this truly athlete-centered uh, center approach or this true positive learning environment for the athletes? Yeah, so that was a great, I was really thanks, thankful to Alex. Some of you probably know Alex, okay, great, great writer. His book Endurance, Endure, right? I think it's called Endure. I mean, the triathlon coaches, if you haven't listened to that, read that book, definitely read it, okay? It's, a, it's fantastic, he did a great job with that. Uh, he wrote, a, so in December, he wrote a piece in Outside Magazine about, yeah, this research that I've done uh, that was part of Tim Conival's uh, thesis. Anyway, the, the way we get around this, Joelle, or the way we address it is we, we first have to understand what are, the, what are the elements of our practice designs that could be contributing to the making of athletes as docile. That is, athletes who are, you know, apathetic, you know, kind of going along for the ride, don't feel engaged and empowered or confident enough to speak up. So what are the, what are the elements of our, of our practice design that do that? And, and what we found through the research, uh, drawing on the work of this guy named Michel Foucault, who's sort of a famous French theorist, now dead, was you know, quite, quite simple. And I've mentioned it a couple times already in this podcast. It has to do with temporal elements. So how time is incorporated into our practices. It has to do with spatial elements, how we use a space and organize people. It has to do with um, e, uh, evaluative, evaluative elements. So how, what we're inserting into our program that has 
that, that we give it the power to be the uh, authoritative judge of what's working or not. Uh, and it also is these organizational elements. How are we assembling and ordering the various parts of our workout and creating these, you know, these, these progressions and templates and periodization charts and all these kind of things. So I don't think I have time to go into it all in detail, but in my research, I've really outlined that to make this change, it's not too difficult because we can look at the elements that are contributing to the problem in our practice details, temporal, spatial, organizational, evaluative elements, and we can start manipulating those. We can start reducing their power. We can start modifying them, eliminating them, adding to them, changing them somehow. And what our research is showing is that when we make those details with our program, that affords the opportunity for athletes to start to become more engaged. And it will take time. It will be hard. You'll get resistance because some of the athletes won't like it. They'll say, why are you asking me to think? Just tell me what, how far to run and how fast to swim. Uh, but as a coach, we have to push through that, not only because it's more ethical to treat people that way, but because I think we anticipate that we'll get better results that way. Because ultimately, when it comes to the race, who's making the decisions? It's the athlete. Who's deciding whether to go with a breakaway group? Who's deciding whether that pace is correct for how they are feeling right now? Who's negotiating the weather and the changing terrain? Who's trying to make a judgment on their fatigue and their effort and their exhaustion? Who has to make judgments about pacing and when to launch into a kick, when to make a surge, how to respond? All of these factors ultimately come down to the athlete. So as coaches, we need to be designing practices that enable athletes to have those opportunities and try them out, right? That's what practice is for. You practice. Mm -hmm. You practice trying things out. It's not about designing workouts just to make athletes fit. You also have to design workouts that teach them how to think and manage the complexity of the uh, competition environment, which as we know, and Dan Path will talk about this brilliantly, is, is a chaotic arena, right? So that's the plug my, my good friend and colleague Dan Path is also speaking today. Yeah, this, it's going to be a fantastic presentation. Hearing you talk, talk about all this, all these concepts, and then, and then Dan following up and, and complimenting on that. But Jim, one, one thing that you mentioned that I find really interesting, you talk about getting the athletes more engaged. And one of our previous seminars and one of the previous podcast conversations that I had with John Kiley, he, John mentioned that one of the key drivers of, of training adaptations is the athlete-coach relationship. Is that once the athlete and the coach establish that good relationship, then you get the athlete more engaged in your training practices and you get the athlete to actually buy in into what has been done in the program. And that should lead to better physiological adaptations. Within your research and with everything that you know, could you comment a little bit on, on that as well, on the role of the coach-athlete relationship into actually driving adaptation and improving performance? And how, how can this different approach to coaching influence that? Yeah, that's good. I mean, <clears throat> of course, I know John's work, and he's a great thinker. Uh, and the word adaptation is so appropriate for him uh, as a physiologist. I think how I'd answer this question and what I'll talk a little bit about in my presentation is the importance of learning. That indeed we want to make athletes fit, but we also want them to be 
learning as they progress through our program. Okay? And so we could, for argument's sake, let's call that a type of adaptation, right? That's a, that's a change. We want them to have some behavioral changes. We want what we do in practice to have some retention and transfer and a change so that they learn more about their bodies, about themselves, about their capacities and capabilities. So to facilitate that, it's paramount that the coach has a philosophy that engages their athletes as learners and respects the complexity and difficulty of learning and also recognizes that learning is highly cultural, it's highly social, it's highly individualistic, it's subjective, it's wrought with difference based on the unique intrinsic dynamics that each athlete brings to the, to the sport environment. So using that word again, I think when coaches are aware of the kind of learner environment relationship, then they recognize that, wow, if I want my athletes to learn, then I have to coach in a way that respects who they are, respects their differences, respects their needs, respects the complexity of learning and how this is not something I can predict, control and manufacture, but it's something that I have to engage with the athlete so that I can understand how to help them learn, grow and thrive in my everyday training context. So I think like along with John, if we believe that athlete learning is important to performance, I would argue that a strong and positive coach-athlete relationship is crucial for a coach to be in the best position to advance his or her athlete's learning, which then translates to performance, right? That's a, that's a great answer. And and I think it's it's one thing that one of those things that probably not a lot of coaches have have had their that, that perception already. But then hopefully after you know after our, our present your presentation on on Thursday we can we can start to shift those those perceptions a little bit. But then Jim, one of the things is in one of the readings that you that you recommended to me previously, there's this idea that the coach and the athlete together they create that that learning system. They're it's not the coach, based on my understanding, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, is the coach and the athlete have to be at the same level to create that learning system and create that learning environment. Is that correct in my, on my assessment? And, and if so, how, how do we create that, that learning environment in, in training sessions? So just one quick thing, I don't, they don't necessarily have to be in the same level, right? I mean, they're gonna, have, they're gonna be different and coaches, are gonna carry with them a lot more experience and expertise than many of their athletes. That's, that's for sure, right? But I think what, where I'm heading, heading to with that idea is that we have a longstanding assumption that learning is this process of transmission, that learning is something that uh, an expert gives to a novice. And I think everybody who's listening to this podcast has seen that empty vessel cartoon where you know, and, uh, you, have a, you have a person and there's a picture of their brain and then there's somebody like, uh, you know, this expert person pouring ideas into their head. And so this, this, this leads to an understanding of 
learning as a linear predictable process. Mm -hmm. Whereas I, I prefer this idea of, to use this term, use more of a, a, a learning system, or I prefer the moves to thinking about learning as more reciprocal. So when you conceptualize learning as reciprocal, that means that athletes and coaches are learning from each other at all times. Mm -hmm. So as a coach, if you arrive at a practice feeling like you know what's going to result and everything's mapped out and there's nothing here for you to learn, well then what are you even doing there? Why don't you just have a monkey stand there and time the athletes? What I'd like to see is, how are you learning as a coach from the way your athletes are learning based on their completion of your workout? What are you learning from them following their learning after three reps, five reps, 10 reps, or after this particular tempo run and these, this particular scenario you might've created through a time trial? What's that teaching you from what they're doing that you now have to learn to be able to coach them better? So I think everybody's in this, reciprocal relationship where what's happening to one person is also imp impacting what's happening to another person. And this presents the opportunity, which I'll talk about in my presentation, to shift this idea of the body as a machine and think more about the body as a force. Because when, when athletes come to practice, they bring with them a force, a force that is based on their, their energy and what happened to them that day or the previous night. And then as they move and as athletes move individually or as a group, it creates a force, much of which is invisible. And it does things. And as a coach, what are you observing and learning from what that doing does? And I really like that's an odd phrase, but learn, what are we learning from what doing does? So as we see things, how does it also help us learn? And that's a way I, I feel like the coach and athlete are part of a reciprocal learning system that if a coach is attentive to that, can be powerful information to make decisions as a practice goes on, as a microcycle goes on, as a mesocycle goes on, as a training quadrennial goes on, mm -hmm. right? So that, yeah, I like, so I like that kind of idea of thinking around the system. Yeah. Jim, uh, let me ask you one more question. If you were the coach and your athletes are coming into to the training session, what are you observing to see what is happening after three reps of a hundred meters or three reps of one K or three reps of one mile, whatever it is that your athletes are doing that day. But what specific aspects are you, are you observing or what aspects do you think that the coaches should be paying attention to? Well, there's so many, aren't there? I mean, yeah. there's body language, there's mechanics, there's technique, there's skill, uh, there's emotion, there's anxiety, there's uh, frustration, there's, effort, there's looking at breathing, there's looking at tension, uh, there's looking at all sorts of things. And not only that, I think the coaches need to be asking questions, right? Not just delivering, reading the stopwatch, right? Not just repeating the obvious, which is how fast they run. I think the coaches need to be more attuned as um, learning design architects to be changing a workout based on what they're seeing and not be afraid to create scenarios that then put athletes in positions where they might learn something more about really how fatigued they are or are they scared here or are they nervous here and if so how do I make an adjustment so I think it's the it's the constant ability to be observant notice and be unafraid to change 
that's going to allow for that kind of dynamic interaction in the daily training environment that is going to be, I think, a positive experience for everybody's development. Nice. Fantastic. Because that's, that was basically what I was, what I was expecting to, to hear from you on, uh, on this sense, in terms of the number of things that a coach has, has to pay attention to actually, because one of the, one of the things that came up in, in all my previous conversations with, with other speakers is that the role of the coach is, the, is safe. The coach's job is safe, at least for the near future, because there's, there's no one piece of technology. There's no app. There's nothing that can actually substitute the, the eye of the coach in terms of making sure that we can observe all these this little things and these details and make changes on, on the fly. We just need to make sure that it's a broad eye, that it's an eye that is considering, you know, personal factors, factors tied into the specifics of the task, larger environmental factors, the politics, you know, the relations, not just form and technique, not just, you know, heart rates and recovery, you know, but looking at this whole broader holistic notion of, of an athlete being in a space, working hard to become excellent. Jim, th thanks so much. And I think, I think this is definitely topics that you're, you're going to go in, in a bit more depth in, in your presentation. And we're pretty excited about that. And I think this, is, this might actually be a, a good point for us to, to wrap this conversation up here as well. I could keep asking you questions for the next hour or so, but to be respectful of your time, if you were to provide your last two key bits of information for, for those triathlon coaches out there in, in terms of how to be more effective with their practice designs and with their programs, what would you do and, and why? And then I'll, I'll let you go after this. I think you need to be brave. You need to be brave to question traditions and taking for granted practices because while they might be effective and do certain things that are considered productive, they can easily come with unintended consequences that could be jeopardizing the, you know, achieving the potential of your athletes. Mm -hmm. And, but at the same time, it's difficult because of the politics in place that make change so difficult. So I guess that would be my word to try to be brave, be courageous, find, look for opportunities to take risks, even if they're only small, try to get your leaders to support that so that you can feel safer in making those changes, look for opportunities, you know, that, you know, like don't just, don't just perhaps jump in and making changes when the stakes are highest, you know, sort of ease yourself into being a little more creative with your developmental athletes, maybe try some things. There's lots of ways you can start to be courageous and brave and innovative and change. And again, why I say courageous and brave is because it's, a, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing, I push coaches, I push my grad students who are in our M coach program, master's coaching program to, yeah, go beyond tradition and, and think about those, those changes which means sometimes going up against power and authority. And that's where risk comes. And, yeah. But you don't have to do it all at once. You can move in small incremental steps. That last answer was, was fantastic, Jim. That's, that basically sums up why we wanted you to be one of our, one of our presenters, at, presenters at the conference, because the be brave and go against the, the traditional ways of, of doing things and thinking about things is, is something that we, that we wanted to, to emphasize here. So, Jim, thank you so much for, for your time today. Really looking forward to your presentation a few days from now. Pretty excited about it. So 
Thank you so much. Thank you, Joao. Really appreciated our conversation. Great questions and it was really stimulating to talk to you for this time and looking forward to meeting the group. Looking forward, Jim. Thanks. Have a great day. you guys enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Denison today and if you're interested in knowing more about all the topics that he discussed in today's episode make sure that you go to our website www.edmonton.triathlon.org or our YouTube channel at WTS underline Edmonton and you'll be able to watch his presentation at the 2020 Science and Triathlon Conference. Thank you guys so much and looking forward to the next episode.